he wiped out a lot of the scientists. And along with those scientists, Korolev got thrown into the prison camps, along with many of the other rocket scientists. Ultimately, they kind of got out to a sort of engineer's halfway house and, and these prison design bureaus that were called Shiraga. And there, interestingly, many of the same people who had worked together in these rocket clubs started working together again in these prison design bureaus. Same people working together. Uh, they had to be a little bit more careful because they couldn't be designing spaceships and things like that, but they were working together. And so now you started to see the formulation of a team of people that had a common vision for spaceflight. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm your host, Jason Cadigan, the founder of this thing. Cold Star Technologies, a data science and process improvement company. I am here with Dr. Andrew Aldrin, director of the Aldrin Space Institute at the Florida Institute of Technology, uh, the ISU Center for Space Entrepreneurship, and a former space entrepreneur. And so we are going to talk about a pretty cool topic today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, that's for about a year ago, I guess, I got this, which is a cigarette case, um, but I use it for business cards. Um, um, it's a, it's a Soviet missiles. There's, you know, a lot of Soviet artwork from this era is really fantastic. And somebody's laminated that onto a metal cigarette case. And, uh, so it's, it's fun. They're, they're doing the, we make missiles like sausages kind of messaging. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think it's cool. And I see you've got your, uh, your CCCP shirt on today. Um, they, they had a lot of great artists employed in, um, promoting this idea that, that the Soviet Union is fantastic. So our topic is uh, how the Soviet Union managed to beat uh, America into space. And I guess we'll be going back to the 50s, maybe even earlier. Uh, no, Russians, actually, we'll go yeah. back to the 30s. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, let's, let's begin. And thanks for being here again, by the way. I, I really Hey, it's my it. pleasure. It's my pleasure. So what, what, why are we focusing on this? Why is it important? I mean, it was the subject, I think, of your, your PhD, but what, well, what else yeah. is it symbolizing? Well, I mean, we all know it's important because it's a, it's a remarkable time in history, and it was that a nation that was as backward as the Soviet Union was able to beat the United States, which just had sort of... Um, an unassailable lead in any kind of technology was was the common belief. And so it's interesting in that it's a remarkable historical case. And um, it was interesting to me because it, um, it, it just intellectually it was intriguing. How did that happen? And as my career sort of wound around and I found myself um, now being a a space entrepreneur um, running a company, but I, I, I am still a space entrepreneur. I just happen to be running an institute now. And, and entrepreneurship happens in lots of different places and in different ways. I mean, it's not all about just Elon Musk. Right. It's, it, entrepreneurs happen in social settings. You, entrepreneurs happen in government settings. And, and originally, the irony is originally when I looked at, at Korolev, the first intellectual framework that I was building on was really a framework of entrepreneurship because he was very much a, a political, a bureaucratic entrepreneur. And I ended up in my dissertation casting it more academic terms of principal agency, but still it's the same story. And as I come back now today, 
and I'm working, you know, on entrepreneurship. This has always been in the back of my head as, as a fundamental story that Korolev was really a remarkable entrepreneur by any measure. And so I think it's a, it's a great story. And, you know, it's what's important about it from a, let's say, not just historical, but maybe an academic perspective, a social science perspective, is that entrepreneurship happens in lots of different places and in different ways. And it kind of starts with the question of, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? And, and I think, you know, we all talk about entrepreneurs as being risk takers, as being innovators, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but you've got people like, you know, Carl Icahn was certainly a risk taker, right? And he, um, he took some incredible financial risks with things like buying out TRW, trying to take over U.S. Steel. But he's not really an entrepreneur, right? He's a financier. Um, Nikolai Tesla mm -hmm. was a brilliant innovator, but he wasn't an entrepreneur. He took his idea and basically sold it to Westinghouse, right? He was an inventor. And so one of the things, there are lots of things which distinguish entrepreneurs, but one of the things that keeps coming up in my mind is entrepreneurs create organizations, mm. right? The difference between Thomas Edison and Nikolai Tesla was Edison created General Electric. And it's one of the things that you look at, I look at when I think about entrepreneurship is they're not just creating ideas and businesses and maybe political movements, but they're creating organizations that are far more lasting and far more important. And so, you know, this is, um, SpaceX is what makes, SpaceX is what makes Elon an entrepreneur, not the Falcon, right? It's the organization. Blue Origin is what makes Bezos an entrepreneur. Um, and so um, Korolev, if by that measure, was one of the most incredible entrepreneurs in history and that, you know, he literally came from, um, you know, the gold mine prisons of Siberia to create an organization that, that today still lasts and most of what you see as the Russian program has its roots in the organizations that Korolev created, you know, literally going back to, I mean, 1956 was sort of a, uh, a seminal moment when all of a sudden he got control of his organization. But at any rate, so yeah, that's what's, that's what's important to me. And it, it's a useful lesson mm -hmm. to bring into our program and entrepreneur entrepreneurship because it, it kind of hammers home in a very clear way that entrepreneurs come in lots of different flavors, lots of different shapes. And, and often they happen inside organizations, not just creating completely new organizations. So yeah, that's one of the things that really fascinates me about it and makes it relevant, you know, mm -hmm. to the study of entrepreneurship and the practice of entrepreneurship today. Okay. I, I really like that. We're operationally defining what entrepreneurship is. It doesn't just have to be in business, which is the typical indicator. Right. Uh, and the fact that it can be in government is fascinating because you think government is this slow bureaucratic thing. And especially with the Soviet Union, a centrally planned economy, right? right. We're going right. to create this uh, department and we need so many people to run it and this level of resources. And yet somebody can come along unexpectedly 
as you're going to talk about mm -hmm. and and uh, create a situation I imagine we're going to hear where uh, it goes up to the the bureaucrats who are handing out the money the resources the people or whatever and, and say look we need to uh, expand this yeah. right you know rather than it coming top down it's going from from Absolutely. the bottom or the middle up anyway and uh, no, it was really very much from the bottom up I mean literally mm -hmm. from the prison you know from the prisons of Colima mm -hmm. you know? So, well, let's, uh, let's set the stage here, uh, Dr. Andy. Uh, for those who are unaware just how bad off the Soviet Union was when it started out, like in the 20s and that, and, you know, you've got the white Russians fighting the Reds and, and the Reds right. gradually taking right. over that, uh, that territory again. Uh, there was no industrialization. They had no factories. They had to get an American named Albert Kahn to come over and help them. And I've done an episode about that uh, on this show, the Cold Star Pro uh, Project called uh, The Unknown Influence of Albert Kahn on Industrial Architecture, um, where they licensed, they got him to, to come over and uh, do a technology transfer, essentially. And they had things like no desks, no drafting desks, no pencils. Basic right. stuff that you would just think, why, why doesn't this huge country have, have this stuff, right? There were less than, I think, 100 tractors in the Soviet Union in the 20s. And they stole an American uh, kind of second-rate tractor and took it apart and tried to recreate it from just having the parts. And uh, I think it was a Ford thing. And, and they were eventually found out about this. And the, the American factory managers came over and went, ha, ha. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, you can take it apart, but the processes for putting it together, uh, ain't, you know, it's just not as obvious right. as you might think. Right. So. Um, to go in 30 years from that, nothing, right? You know, we got a bunch of smart guys, right? They were not stupid engineers in the Soviet Union, but they had nothing to work with. They had, did not have this pencil right here that I'm holding up, right? To, to hey, we're going to beat the Americans into space. So that, that is really exciting. So let's, let's uh, set the scene from your perspective. You wanted to go back to the 30s. Um, yeah. Let's pick it up there. So in the 1930s, um, this was kind of during an era of, of forced industrialization, to be mm. sure. What was happening in the Soviet Union at the time was Stalin was trying to transition the country from an agricultural country to an industrialized country. And, and he did it by literally forcing the peasants, in a lot of cases, through starvation off of the farms into the city and basically extracting all of the food from the farmers and giving it to the workers. And that um, forced people off of the farm and into the cities. And so there was, I think, a brutal, but ultimately successful attempt to just by force industrialize the, com the country. Um, and, but what was happening in um, politically and in, in rocketry at the time was, you know, in some ways, much like Germany, there was a group of rocket enthusiasts mm -hmm. who, who had, you know, they had been reading um, Tsiolkovsky, Kondratuk, um, some truly, I think, pioneering Soviet thinkers about space. Um, and, but they were enthusiasts. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any support from the government and they got together and they had rocket clubs and ultimately they got a little bit of support from the government. In fact, one of the most respected marshals, Marshal Tukhachevsky, 
was um, a supporter of what they were doing. We're in the 1930s in the Soviet Union, along comes Stalin's purges. And, and for those of you who have a, a, are students of Soviet history, what happened in the 30s was Stalin basically, well, he was a paranoid freak, right? A paranoid freak. And, and basically anyone who was competent was viewed with incredible suspicion. And Tukhachevsky was a brilliant general and a technological innovator. So naturally, he was under suspicion and he was surely such a brilliant man, must be plotting against Stalin. And so he killed him. And in fact, he wiped out nearly all of the general staff. He wiped out a lot of the scientists. And along with those scientists, Korolev got thrown into the prison camps along with many of the other rocket scientists. Um, ultimately, they kind of got out to a sort of um, engineer's halfway house and, and these prison design bureaus with, that were called Shiraga. Um, and and there, interestingly, many of the same people who had worked together in these rocket clubs started working together again in these prison design bureaus. Same people working together uh, they had to be a little bit more careful because they couldn't be designing spaceships and things like that, but they were working together. And so now you started to see the formulation of a team of people that had a common vision for spaceflight. They had kind of a hierarchy I and mean, at least a leadership that Korolev and another guy named Glushko were kind of viewed as the, in, the, in, the engineering leaders of the group. And and they actually learn to work together and, and start to kind of build some rocketry things. And this goes all the way back now to the 30s. Then, then you've got World War II comes along and, and these guys end up um, actually sent to Germany to dig up German rocket technology. Now, um, the thing is the Soviet leadership wasn't really very interested in German rocket technology. They were interested in everything German, right? They literally moved the entirety of, of German, East German industry to the Soviet Union on literally thousands and thousands of trains. And of those thousands and thousands of trains, exactly one, 180 rail cars, was consisted of uh, German rocket, rocket scientists and things like that. And in fact, um, there was kind of, there wasn't a great deal of interest on the part of the leadership. In, in fact, during the latter days of World War II, Churchill was pushing Stalin to, um, to launch an assault on Penamunde, where the Germans were launching the V-2s on London. And, and Stalin ignored him. For good reason. He was going to Berlin yeah. and he didn't want to divert the troops. Um, when, you know, when it was clear and that then the Soviets had, had all but marched on and taken control of Berlin, even then Stalin showed very little interest in rocketry. There was some, but no one was really upset that the Americans got all the rocket scientists. And of course, right. the last place that the German rocket scientists wanted to go was Russia, right? You know, there's a famous quote, I think it was, it wasn't from Von Braun, it was from, it was Von Braun's brother, who said, you know, we were scared to death of the Soviets, the French really couldn't do anything, and 
and the English didn't have enough money. So the only place for us to go was the Americans. And so literally, you know, Von Braun and his rocket team found the Americans and said, we surrender to you. Um, and so whatever efforts the, the Soviets made, and there's some great stories here, they actually made them with, a, I would say, um, great, a grudging approval, but certainly not endorsement. In fact, they sort of snuck behind the lines and picked up whatever they could. And they ended up getting a few German scientists, but it wasn't really clear that there was support. Nevertheless, Korolev and his team gathered up some German scientists, brought them back, rebuilt some, they, they managed to rebuild some, some A4 rockets, the V2. Um, the Germans kind of helped them figure out how to build it. And then, um, this is kind of another interesting piece of it, then Korolev did, I think, a very brilliant job of in a, a, a technical review of the German program. Korolev managed to shoot down everything that they were doing and, and basically discredit their ideas, get the Germans thrown out. And, and so now, now Korolev's biggest competitor, right? They've been discredited and sent out. So, you know, he was sort of on his way to creating his team then. So there's some politics here to be played. Oh, it's all politics. Yeah. Wow. Right? Uh, I mean, who gets the resources and the direction? Yeah. Well, but that's not, I, I mean, that's not different. Mm -hmm. than over, right, over from any other country. as well, right. Oh, yeah, mean, the Americans had Operation Paperclip, which allowed them to let uh, the, the former German scientists into the country and then rehab them for about 10 years so their reputation was all right, and then they could take Von Braun. And, and well, and we didn't <laughs> do a whole lot with them right. initially, right? We got them all, and we threw them, hmm. sent them out to New Mexico yeah. and kind of didn't do anything with them because we didn't. Nevertheless, but I mean, the point is that you know, if um, every entrepreneur deals with an, an environment where they need to get resources from someone else, unless, of course, you're Jeff Bezos, in which case, you know, your, your pitch deck is pretty easy, mm -hmm. right? Um, you just, you're pitching to yourself. But um, so, um, yeah, it's not, it's not that different. I mean, to be sure that the relationship with leadership and, and the engineers is um, is different in the Soviet Union in the sense that, you know, if if you get in trouble with someone, it's not that you just get defunded, you get shot, right? right. Or become a non-person or something like that, you know. And for those who don't really know much about history of that, I go, really, could the purges have been that bad? I recommend you go read this book. It's called Bloodlands. It's by a Yale historian named Timothy Snyder. And it's terrifying. Um, all these wipeouts of populations as Stalin is getting rid of the peasants and pushing them into the cities and wasting food and there's famine. It's just terrible. And um, you get these stories of, uh, of Soviet generals being sent to concentration camps. And there's one very famous Soviet general who got his teeth knocked out and then the war started and they went, oh, we need this guy. So they brought him back had a little stopover in Moscow so we could get metal teeth reinstalled like Jaws from the 007 movies and then sent back out there to fight. I mean, it's, it's really some terrifying stuff going on here. So, yeah, so, so this is not a case of the marketplace determining much, right? This is, this is politics. This is what are we going to do with the resources and, and direction in that. And so this one fellow who, uh, who's, who's come out from Siberia, you said, uh, 
to, right. to advocate for this and get involved in that. I am curious how he chose this particular field and got involved in, in this part of the bureaucracy. Um, did they have much choice? Was he allowed to say, I want to do this, or did he get assigned? No, 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 no. I mean, you know, as I said, Korolev was a rocket enthusiast, a space yeah. cadet from the 1930s. Mm -hmm. This was what he wanted to do. No, the, they let the you leaders, do he, okay. got, he got the leadership to make a decision to approve going ahead okay. with a missile program. Mm -hmm. But even then, it, it was far from, you know, a case where the, the leadership was throwing a huge amount of resources at it. And mm -hmm. In fact, you know, with the original decision um, by Stalin in 46, um, Korolev was only like a department head in a small laboratory in a mm -hmm. bigger institute. It wasn't okay. like he was put in charge of a huge program. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, he picked what he wanted to do. He was pushing the program that he wanted and leadership support was lukewarm at best. I mean, there, there are lots of times where Korolev or, or one of his um, deputies, particularly brilliant guy named Tikhon Ravov, would pitch ideas and people would say, you really must have, you must have too much free time on your hands. <laughs> and, and times where Korolev's rockets would be um, denied admission into service because, for example, you know, the rocket was one millimeter out of spec. Hmm. And so they, it wasn't like the leadership was anxious to promote rocketry. It was, I mean, I, I don't think they could make a, I don't think they could make an artillery shell that was within one meter, <laughs> that one meter millimeter tolerances. I'm, I'm kind of kidding. Um, huh. But yeah, it was not a program which had, um, Korolev was very adept at getting the decisions that he needed. He was very adept at, at building relationships with his um, immediate customers, if you will, mm -hmm. his customers okay. in the military. Because in, in the Soviet system, there's the Ministry of Defense, which is a uniform mm -hmm. military, and then the Ministries of Industry. And mm -hmm. it's not unlike the U.S. system, which you got a military customer and, and an industrial supplier, except that the industrial supplier doesn't rely on the military for his money. Mm. The military does not control their money. They simply approve mm -hmm. Congress. development right. of something with someone else's money. And yeah. so once the decision to fund an institute is made, the question for the military is just which one of their projects are you going to approve? Huh. Okay. So. And, and I think something I, that, that really clarifies things for us. Thank you. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first, and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on, but business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. 
We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. Uh, I, I think I want to point out too to to our listeners and viewers, this is a period like 46 through 48 and a little bit beyond in that. Um, we're used to stuff today. We're used to intercontinental ballistic missiles and they had that stuff in the 60s and that. But 48, I think, was the year that the Russians got the, the nuclear bomb specs. Uh, it was, oh, they got it was, the specs? It was around that time. Yeah. yeah, and they stole it. There was no yeah. delivery system for this thing. Right. Like and the Americans were figuring this stuff out, too. How do we deliver a nuclear weapon to its target? The American solution was to come up with strategic air command. They had dropped bombs with V-29s. Right. And so they came up with a new long range plane to drop nuclear bombs. But if you could come up with a missile system, that's probably cheaper and uh, and maybe less easy to shoot down than a plane. So some, some of these factors are, are impacting this decision. It, it is, but it, to be honest with you, the primary motivation, the primary path that they had for delivery of nuclear weapons was a bomber. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, yeah. they very famously, as you pointed out with the tractors, so mm-hmm. somehow or another, a, um, a B-29 ended up landing in Siberia at the, towards the end of, of World War II at the, in the Far Eastern Theater with the Japanese. Um, there's a famous story about how they copied it. Apparently this particular B-29 um, during the process of, um, I, I don't know, some maintenance had been painted, the interior had been painted two different colors. Hmm. And it was just like they ran out of one color of paint and started with another color of paint. When the Soviets copied it, they had the same painting scheme. Um, and, so, and so for the Ministry of Aviation Production, which was the ministry which was going to deliver the nuclear war, warheads or bombs, they were not interested in rocketry. Mm. Right? Rocketry ended up um, in the Ministry of, of Artillery, which was not where Korolev wanted to be. And mm-hmm. frankly, okay. he, he struggled when he came back from Germany. He struggled to find a sponsor. Hmm. Because Ministry of Aviation Production didn't want to do it. They were also, they were interested in looking at uh, the Sanger rocket glider. I don't know if you're familiar with hmm. that, but uh, German scientists, well, I've forgotten his first name, Sanger developed, um, essentially it was a, um, I believe it was a vertically launched rocket glider that would skip over the top of the atmosphere, hmm. drop its bombs on um, the United States, and I'm not sure how it got home. Maybe it didn't. Um, So um, that's what the Ministry of Aviation Production was focused on. But their primary focus was building bombers like the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, Prop driven bombers for a long time. There wasn't a clear priority put on developing ballistic missiles until really uh, the early 50s, I would say. I think there's a decision in 53 um rockets were kind of a fantasy so i think that that's a little bit of um, well let's 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 ask the question then for those five six seven years there between the end of world war one and that 1953 55 era what other than the backwater of the artillery department, right? What is the priority for rocket development in the Soviet Union then? What are they, what are they trying to use? Rocket development. Just um, to have it? I guess the point is it, it really wasn't a huge priority. Yeah. It was a relatively small program. 
Okay, so just work on your thing over there and maybe right. it'll turn into something later. We'll, we'll have some that's exactly right. baskets out there or, or pans in the fire and maybe something I think that, will come I think out of one of these things. Right. They, okay. Right, they decided they were gonna create a, an organization, hmm. but they didn't seem to be terribly concerned about the success of that organization. Hmm. Now they did have, in fairness, Dmitry Ustinov, who was the minister of the artillery industry when he finally kind of started to sort things out, I think did a good job of managing it. But I think Korolev did a better job of managing Ustinov. But mm. there, um, there was a testy relationship between Korolev and, and the Marshal, Marshal Malinovsky, of, um, who was the artillery marshal, who you know, accused Korolev at various times of, um, I won't, say, I won't say falsifying reports, but mm. let's say there was one instance in which Korolev had a, uh, a mission failure and, um, and Malinovsky said, you know, once again, Korolev, you've, you've turned crap into roses in this report. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't, and another, another I, I thought, famous interaction was uh, very early on, this is probably 1951-ish, um, Korolev had another failed rocket test where his rocket went way off course and, and Malinovsky says, look, uh, and this is when they were building copies of the V2. So they're using alcohol as, as fuel. And he said, look, you take two tons of alcohol, you put it in this rocket, you can't even hit a city. You give my troop that two tons of alcohol and I promise you we will take any city. <laughs> um, you know, uniquely Soviet, but so um, the military, and they're not to say there were people in the military who supported him, but they tended not to be the ones at a high level. And so, um, you know, Korolev was constantly manipulating his way through the bureaucracy and, um, you know, kind of using, maybe even abusing his monopoly of information. So, I mean, the biggest and the best example of this whole thing was the, the rocket that he ultimately built that that launched Sputnik and the, the same rocket which has launched every Soviet and Russian person into space um, was a really crappy ICBM. And there were competitors out there, um, Yangle in particular, had a better rocket that used storable propellants. But Korolev succeeded for a time at least in discrediting Yangle's storable propellant rocket um, and by using his good buddy at the Academy of Sciences to write reports saying this rocket won't work. And, and, rock, and Korolev persisted in developing a, um, a rocket using, well, not cryogenic propellants, but liquid oxygen that was a crappy ICBM, but a, a beautiful launch vehicle. And of course, once he launched Sputnik, then he had a space program and he didn't care about it anymore. But um, yeah, he was, you know what it's like? Um, there's, this, there's a saying in, in Silicon Valley, which frankly kind of torques me off. It's fake it till you make it, mm. right? Korolev was faking it till he made it. I mean, literally. Um, anyway, you know, and it's, and, and you know, like, um, I think in, in many ways, like Elon Musk, he suffered from a lot of failures and it, um, it was, it wasn't guaranteed that he was going to end up with a program. You could easily have seen the whole thing shut down. Mm -hmm. 
So from what you're saying then, Andy, both, both countries, the Americans and the Soviet Union, um, had this kind of drift going on with space programs or rocket programs after World War II. They weren't that interested in it. They didn't really know what to do with this expertise. Uh, they just kind of stuck them off in the backwaters and that. What, what eventually lit the match? What got things going here uh, um, you know, to oh, an interest yeah. of, okay, we have to do this? Well, so part of the answer is there really wasn't hmm. uh, an explosive beginning to it. I mean, nobody said there's a race. We got to beat, mm -hmm. we got to beat the other guy into space. What happened is in, um, I forget the year, but I think it was probably 55, 56, maybe they declared 1958 to be the international geophysical year. Hmm. And, and one of the things that the science community said was as part of this IGY, we want to launch a satellite around the earth. And so um, that, I think, provided some legitimacy. Mm. But of course, the U.S. had various programs that were kind of puttering along. And if the U.S. really wanted to build a launch vehicle and put a satellite into space, they could have done it. Mm. But it wasn't really a priority. And Eisenhower uh, at the time was very sensitive to the notion that a military rocket launching a satellite uh, would be abused by the Soviet Union as a, as a clear demonstration that the U.S. was militarizing space or something like that. And, and Eisenhower is very sensitive to that. And I think it was the right thing to do. But on the U.S. side, there wasn't a huge amount of focus and motivation to it, whereas it wasn't that the Soviet leadership was dedicated to it. It was Korolev who was dedicated to it. And Korolev had his organization and after he had a successful rocket test in 1956, where he literally launched an a intermediate range missile that went from, uh, at the time it would be uh, Baikonur to Lake Balkash, out, it was a dry lake out in the middle of Siberia, um, literally with a live warhead. And when that program was successful, all of a sudden, I think the military leadership, the political leadership, um, Khrushchev uh, were convinced that, that there really was a weapon here. And so at that point, Korolev had his own organization and he was in great shape. Um, but um, it was Korolev who kept, Khrushchev didn't care about going into space. Mm -hmm. Not until we went in, not until they went into space. In fact, the day they launched Sputnik, the night they launched Sputnik, Korolev calls up Khrushchev and says, look, we, comrade, we launched a satellite in space, first satellite ever been into space. And Khrushchev says, why are you waking me up? It's 10 o'clock. <laughs> um, Khrushchev was, knowing Khrushchev was probably flat ass drunk, but, um, <laughs> you know, so it, it wasn't until after that. And in fact, the day after Sputnik, if you look at the Soviet papers, that the news agency, TASS, had about a three-inch column <laughs> in there about Sputnik. And, and which is nothing, of course. And the rest of the world went crazy, right? The New York Times full front page is all about Sputnik. And of course, Khrushchev didn't get to be general secretary of the Communist Party, actually he was premier, but by being a stupid person, he understood politics. And from that point on, he brilliantly manipulated it. But from that point on, Korolev had a space program. Hmm. And... And I think even though I think 
Korolev was kind of the military utility of his rocket was discredited shortly after that. He didn't care. He had a space program, which is the mm. thing that he really wanted. So, um, you know, if you get back to entrepreneurship, this is entrepreneurs have ideas. They have businesses. Right. They change, you know, but because Korolev actually started out a, a huge adherent um, to rocket gliders. He was he was an aerodynamicist. He wanted wings. It wasn't until it wasn't until the he saw the opportunity created by the German rockets that he realized that there was a faster way to get there. And and it may have also been the fact that you know he was he was in the military in Ministry of Artillery Production, and so he had to build something that looked like an artillery shell. I don't know. <laughs> right. Anyway, well, let's let's so, talk I mean, about. The, the organization that you mentioned, he's got a vision, he's sticking to it, he's protecting that vision with the possible, <laughs> you know, making things look as good as possible, let's say, and discrediting his opponents in that. What else is he doing in terms of gathering people to help him in, in building yeah. this organization leading up to 1958, let's say? Right, so we started with talking about, you know, the informal team of, of rocket enthusiasts who worked together in the 30s, continued to work together. Um, but I think the real brilliance of the organization that, that Korolev created was um, he created an informal organization, which he referred to as a council of chief designers that hmm. didn't have, there was a sort of a f official secret committee, but Korolev created a working organization underneath it that brought together um, organizations from six different ministries, you know, from actually literally got gyroscopes from shipbuilding and electronics industry. Um, and they work together seamlessly without interference from ministers. And if, if you look at the way the Soviet economy worked, typically everything is, is, is stovepiped. You don't have communications with other ministers, with other ministries without going through the minister. But Korolev was able to do this through his informal council of chief designers. And that council of chief designers, ultimately in 1960, I think it was 63 maybe, became the ministry, the, the ministry of medium or general machine building. So basically his council of chief designers became a ministry, became formalized as an organization. Um, but it had worked informally and that in many ways, that organization, you know, particularly as it existed from, let's say, 1949 through 59 in the early 60s, was probably the most important factor in Korolev's success is that mm -hmm. he could do whatever he needed to do with people that shared the same missions without seeking mm -hmm. approval for every decision he needed. If he needed more resources, he'd have to go you know, he would have to go to Ustinov and get more resources, but he could pretty much, he could run his program across six ministries without a whole lot of interference. Hmm. And the speed and decision-making you can imagine coming right. out of that is really, really important. It's an entrepreneurial organization right. in the Soviet Union, which is the last place you'd expect to see it. Right, right. Um, I guess a, a, a contrasting question is why didn't the Americans do something similar? Why didn't, why didn't the Americans produce someone with that level of vision or commitment? And I don't know if there's an answer to that. <laughs> there is, but it's not very satisfying. Yeah. Ah. So, I mean, one of the reasons when I was, 
you know, when I was doing this research and I was looking at bureaucratic entrepreneurship as a framework, there was a, 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 um, a sentence that I read by one of my advisors, uh, a very noted political scientist, James Q. Wilson, who worked on stuff that had nothing to do with rocketry, but he wrote a brilliant book on, on bureaucracy. He said, the problem with entrepreneurship as an intellectual framework is it relies on the chance appearance of a brilliant individual. And so Korleff appeared and, and it was, there wasn't, I mean, if there was a Korolev in the United States, it was von Braun, mm -hmm. right? But von Braun. Right. He was in the middle of his rehab. <laughs> his, uh, he didn't. His um, rehab. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, it, mm. in some ways he was more constrained by the leadership. And if, you know, there's no doubt that if, if von Braun was able to get a leadership decision that says you're in charge of the program, yeah. he would have beat the Soviets. No mm. question. No question at all. Um, and so, you know, some of it is just um, historical circumstances that are really difficult to disentangle. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why that's why it happened. But the net result, which you can take to things today, the net result was the Soviet Union beat the United States because there was an entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial organization. And if you kind of flash forward quite a bit to say what what are the things that are different about um, you know, the space revolution that didn't happen in 2000 mm. and, and the space revolution, which seems to be happening today. And, and you can look at there are lots of differences in technology. There are lots of that we can do things smaller. There are differences in, in financial structure and the, the financial structure today is much more broad based. Whereas in, the, in 2000, it was mostly corporate debt mm. and finance and that had its own kind of diseconomies. But one of the fundamental differences is if you look at today, you know, you've got Elon Musk, you've got Jeff Bezos, you've got um, Richard Branson, you've got a bunch of really high profile, very serious and dedicated entrepreneurs, individuals who want to own these programs. And if you go back to 2000, we really didn't have those. And I'm not saying it, that's, that's not enough data to say it's decisive, but it is a striking difference between what happened, what didn't happen in 2000 mm -hmm. and what seems to be happening today. Right. Well, I very much look uh, for hints from history. I enjoy seeing patterns and, and indicators and, you know, lessons that we can take to our times. And I think a big takeaway, uh, I hope for our, our listeners and viewers is that you don't have to just be in a business situation in order to be an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, it's if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to go into a bureaucratic thing or into NASA or something like that, and I'm not going to be able to do anything entrepreneurial. Well, I, I, I suspect the takeaway here is that it's kind of up to you. <laughs> it is. I mean, but what are you, you willing know, so to do? Look oh. at Kelly Johnson, right? He created Skunk Works and Skunk Works became his entrepreneurial organization. And, and since that time, you know, Lots of companies have created, the, created their own analogs or tried to create their own analogs to Skunk Works, hmm. but I don't think you'll find any of them where it, the identity and the value of that company was really owned by one person, hmm. you know? So, um, 
and, and I'm sure the same thing is true in Skunk Works today, but you know, Skunk Works was a Kelly Johnson organization. Um, and so you do, I mean, I think that's gonna be one of the challenges um, for entrepreneurial space in the future, for new space, whatever it is, for progress, is going to be how do you get companies which are capable of, of being patient with their capital mm -hmm. and have the resources to make great innovative things happen, but they need to understand how to operate and create entrepreneurial organizations within their organizational boundaries. And um, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, that's one of the things I'm trying to understand and trying to understand how to make that happen because I think it's an important piece of it. Right. And um, going back to students again, who were looking at graduation, maybe you don't want to be this person, this entrepreneurial person, but you do want a chance to shine. Maybe an indicator to look for in a place that's hiring. Um, is, is there somebody like that who exists? Is there somebody who is leading in place like that uh, at an organization you're looking at joining? Who is a really good point. Really look, standing look out. for your boss. Yeah. I yes. mean, not just your immediate boss, but is the, is the organization you're, falling into led by someone who's an, who's an inspiring dedicated resourceful leader mm -hmm. i mean then that can be a double-edged sword sometimes going to work at spacex can be a tough road right yeah but there yeah and that boss is going to color your approach they're gonna they're gonna show you their way of doing things and their way of seeing the world and that's gonna but, like as a young person boy i went through three or four of those and they all affected me in in who i am today and some some good some bad right <laughs> and, and as a as a person who's new to the workforce you have no discernment you don't know what is good and what is bad so this this could no but be i mean that's educator. one of the things we try and teach yeah. in our program is pay right. attention to the organization you're going to be a part of because mm -hmm. it's going to shape you whether you end up staying there or going somewhere else you know the people that leave spacex take a lot of the lessons good and bad mm -hmm. from spacex and right. they're out there making a different and lots of other companies. Right, right. Well, this has been fascinating. Uh, Dr. Aldrin, where can people get a hold of you if they want to find out more or connect with you? Uh, the Center for Space Entrepreneurship, isucse.fit.edu. Right, right. I will link to that in the description below because that is a lot okay. of letters and dots and dashes and things like that. But thank you very much uh, for, for my appearing pleasure. here. And talking about your PhD thesis and, and this yeah, really it interesting idea. It's, it's a fascinating idea. I really, really have enjoyed it. Okay. Jason, thank you very much for having me on. Have a great day. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer <laughs> who'd have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted 
I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com slash msb and join us on the mission to make space boring. Mm -hmm.